Welcome to the Hoban Minute, a podcast that will shift your perspective on the business, politics, and culture of the hemp and marijuana industries. I'm your host, Xavier Jaillet. It's 420 somewhere, so let's dive in. Welcome to episode one of season two of the Hoban Minute. I'm your new host, Xavier Jaillet, and I'm joined, as I will be for the foreseeable future, by colleague, mentor, and good friend, Perhaps the man most influential in the global cannabis industry, Bob Hoban. How you doing, Bob? I, I am doing fantastic. It's wonderful to to reboot this uh, this series, and furthermore, it's great to have you uh, on board. While well, we'll we'll miss our, our great friend and longstanding host Eric Singular, he has uh, moved on to uh, bigger and better things. Uh, but it's a pleasure to be sitting here with you, and I look forward to all of the great things we're going to do during this season. Yes, no, I've got some uh, big shoes to fill, um, literally and figuratively. So uh, hopefully I can do a decent job of carrying the torch on Eric's behalf. I do want to take a moment to uh, introduce myself to the audience. I am um, a legal professional. I'm not an attorney, but I have been in the cannabis space since about 2012. I was a bud tender at a little shop up in Boulder, Colorado before eventually moving into the ranks of sales and selling software, then selling equipment and machinery, and then for some reason deciding to go to law school and come and work with you. Well, well, that's a great, that's a great uh, place to start. What made you decide to go to law school? Wow. What did make me decide to go to law school? You know, I think it was I had felt like I had reached a limit a limit in my influence and my ability to further the cannabis industry at large. You know, I think I've been um, very much dedicated to the cannabis space since before I got a job, quite frankly. Always been a uh, self-medicator, we can say. Um, And I felt like I had, again, reached the end of my influence and that a, a law degree would perhaps open new doors and then create new opportunities for me to continue to assist cannabis operators in doing what they do and what they love. Well, that's a, that's a great answer and a great reason to go to law school. It reminds me of a story. Um, when I was in law school, um, I was tasked with picking up the, the great legendary attorney, Jerry Spence from an airport in Laramie, Wyoming to bring him over to the law school. And, uh, Jerry Spence asked me the same question. Why did you decide to go to law school? They tasked a law student with picking up the esteemed attorney from the airport. I was uh, the president of the student body, in effect. There was no such thing as a student body president, but I was a 3L class president, and and, in all intents and purposes, uh, I was charged with that duty. And I I stepped right up to do it. I'm a big fan of Jerry Spence. In any event, Jerry Spence asked me the same question. Jerry Spence says, what is it that makes you want to go to law school? And by the way, when a senior lawyer asks you that question, particularly a successful lawyer, what they want to hear is, um, I just love the law. I love the Constitution. I want to stand up for the righteousness and, and justice. And by the way, all of that is typically true, but it's not really the first thing that I thought of, just like your answer, which was, which is a great answer. But our answers were very similar. Uh, Mr. Spence, it's a pleasure to meet you. Um, I 
went to law school because I believe it allows me to um, influence things. It allows me to have a, an educational platform to understand the law, and that is remarkably transferable to a variety of things that I may or may not want to do when I grow up, quote-unquote. Um, and Jerry Spence looked me in the eye, and he said, Mr. Hoban, um, I wish you the best of luck in your career, but in effect, if you're going to law school and you're going to be a lawyer, it is a proud and noble profession, and you have to first have a love for the law and the Constitution uh, and the like. Now, Jerry Spence could say that from a position of great wealth and success over the years, uh, but I do believe that th there's, 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 a, there's merit to that position, certainly, uh, and, and it is a, uh, a tremendous uh, profession. But in any event, uh, I'm so glad that uh, you're here with us and that we're beginning this, this new season. Um, and we've got so much to talk about because so much has occurred since the last time we recorded what I believe was episode 150. Wow, 150. And now we're on to the first episode of season two. And yes, we do have quite a bit to discuss. It's been about a year since you heard from Bob last, and of course, you have never heard from me. So we'd love to take a quick tour around what's been happening around the world for us personally, um, and then most importantly, what's been happening in the cannabis industry over the last year. So starting here in the U.S., we uh, still have a democratically controlled White House and Congress and House, and we have a president and a vice president that have campaigned on marijuana legalization and reform, yet we still have federal illegality. What's going on? Well, th that's, that's not a surprise, frankly. I mean, there are many contrived ways that the U.S. will progress on cannabis policy reform. And when I say contrived, I mean um, politically motivated. And of course, anything happens in Washington, D.C., it's got to be politically motivated, right? But what I've seen working around the world is that most countries, most jurisdictions have a quote-unquote a why, a W-H-Y. Why are we going to legalize cannabis? Is it for economic development? Is it for criminal justice reform, social justice reform? Is it to develop jobs in the economy uh, or a combination of all the above or, or other factors that are cultural or specific to a country? We don't always know those things. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't think the U.S. has its why. Accordingly, we have uh, the Democratic Party advocating for social and criminal justice reform, uh, rightfully so. Uh, the war on drugs, the war on cannabis in particular, marijuana, has adversely affected populations, uh, deprived people of opportunities, uh, and those proportionally, disproportionately come from black and brown communities. So there's that element from the Democratic Party. And then the Republicans that are in favor of cannabis reform, um, it's a mixed bag. Is it about states' rights? Is it about um, job creation? Is it about individual freedoms? There's a, there's a number of these factors that come into play. I don't think the U.S. has identified its why just yet, which is why we see this patchwork of the States Act or the Safe Banking Act or the Climb Act um, uh, or a variation of all of these, these measures. So as we sit here and uh, Senator Schumer, uh, obviously a powerful leading Democrat in the Senate drives forward certain proposals in conjunction with other powerful Democrats. And we've seen Republicans advocate for the same, but in a different way. We just don't see that alignment. Uh, and frankly, I don't honestly un think that the 
people in Washington, D.C. really appreciate and understand the reality of what is the U.S.'s cannabis industry, let alone the fact that it's a global enterprise right now. And we are soon to be sandwiched between two quite substantial nations, Mexico and Canada, with outright cannabis legalization. So something has to give, but we don't have the why just yet. Now, you might have lobbyists and policy advocates in D.C. listening to this saying, oh, uh, that's wrong, or I know this, or I know that. Those positions are, of course, all going to be accurate from that person's perspective. But I think as an overarching concept, the U.S. needs a why, and I don't know what it is. Yeah, and I think you know one thing I, I hear you say quite frequently in our daily conversations is that the uh, the U.S. industry, while it needs a why, it's also you know the politicians and the decision makers have only been hearing from industry insiders. You know they've heard from the folks that are the farmers, they've heard from the operators, they've heard from the people that are you know in the trenches of the cannabis industry, and quite frankly, they're tired of hearing from them. They're ready to hear from, you know, the multinational corporations. They're ready to hear from larger companies that want and want to enter the business, the industry, and then have the influence to actually effectuate that change. You know, once Coca-Cola and Frito-Lay and some of these larger companies decide, hey, we want to get in, all of a sudden we're going to see some major political changes because the dollars are going to start flowing and, you know, they're in the senator's pockets. Which is why the efforts towards safe banking and the like are not insignificant. It seems like it's simply a small piece of the overall reform puzzle, but it's those small steps that move towards banking, access to capital markets, uh, clarity surrounding the scheduled nature of the marijuana plant, uh, and many of these proposals uh, contemplate descheduling. So as you do those things, those companies you mentioned, whether it's Frito-Lay and Coca-Cola, Procter & Gamble, or you know, companies that, that, that are international in scope, it's just perceived by politicians, and perhaps rightfully so, that they know how to create safe, consumer-friendly goods, that they know how to do things in a way that won't create a public health problem or the like. And the industry, I'm not so sure it's that the people in D.C. are tired of hearing from them, although they grow weary of it. I think it's it, it comes from a strictly um, self-centered approach towards preservation of its existing assets, and it comes without any reference to any historical context where these companies have, for a lengthy period of time, put products into a marketplace that have been deemed to be tried and true, safe, and consumer-friendly. And, and I think that's really where it comes down to. Because your average politician, um, you and I might know more scientifically about the cannabis plant by a long shot than your average uh, uh, politician at any level. So I just don't think they understand that these products are, in fact, safe, safely produced. Uh, but, but perhaps more import importantly, that they actually create health benefits to the human body if ingested in a particular way versus being an adverse thing that we have to worry about in society. So I think, I think those things need to shake themselves out, but we'll get there. We've got to get there. Now, companies, our clients in particular, that want to see federal legalization or see clarity and certainty under the law, sometimes you have to be careful what you ask for. 
Because if you do create certainty and legalization, then those larger players will end up controlling the space. And they, they, they certainly have interest, but they're likely on the sidelines right now because of the Schedule One nature of the, uh, of the substance, of the plant. So that's the thing that you need to tread very carefully uh, about because you don't necessarily want to create an outright legalization environment that eliminates opportunities for existing players. So there has to be a balance, and that goes to the why. I don't think we know how to do that yet because uh, no other country has really had as robust of a marketplace as we have across the U.S. Um, and we'll see what happens in Europe, in Germany. It'll be a great model for, the, for how the rest of Western Europe in particular will react, but it also could be a good model for how we find our why. I like that. And I think it is imperative to tread lightly and carefully um, moving forward. But, you know, that actually makes me think of another segment of the industry that's doing anything but that. And that would be intoxicating hemp-derived cannabinoids. We talk frequently to companies that are producing consumer goods that are intoxicating, you know, quite frankly, unregulated. And um, they're charging ahead with products that as decided by the Ninth Circuit Court, are federally legal. So how do we reconcile, you know, the hemp-derived cannabinoids, the Delta-8s, the THCOs, the HHCs, you know, what you name the isomer, and there's someone out there putting it in products. How do we reconcile that with, you know, the traditional cannabis industry that everyone thinks of when they think of cannabis? Well, look, the 2014 Farm Bill was broad and sweeping. The 2018 Farm Bill removed any notion that this was not a commercially um, acceptable industry. And it did quite clearly state that all derivatives from the hemp plant, including THC, are no longer controlled substances. So when you create an opportunity, this is the American entrepreneur. This is, this is entrepreneurialism 101. It is the foundation for this country that when there is a, I don't want to call it a loophole because it's, it's not a loophole. A loophole is a, a way to look for something that they didn't address. Well, they address this. The law quite clearly says all derivatives from the hemp plant are indeed uh, no longer controlled substances. So entrepreneurs blasted through that language and they've created opportunities uh, and, and to their credit, um, they've succeeded. Now we'll see where that goes uh, the federal government is effectively tied to the legislation to date. Uh, there was a Ninth Circuit federal court decision in recent months that did clarify that all derivatives does indeed mean what it says it means, which, by the way, Xavier, is not always common under the law. Just because it says it doesn't mean it means that if we were to look those words up in, in, the, in the, the, the dictionary. But here, the derivatives from the hemp plant mean derivatives from the hemp plant uh, without regard to intoxicating effects or otherwise. And that's the, the provision that exists under the law. So states have taken it upon themselves to restrict, to limit, to, to ban perhaps these substances, but many states have not. In fact, most recently, we saw Tennessee of all places. We saw Kentucky of all places uh, looking to facilitate these products into the marketplace. So uh, changes are coming and they're coming fast and agencies and individuals and politicians all over the country at every level have to adapt and react. But the marketplace certainly demands these things. 
Um, and that is what the providers produce and supply. And it shouldn't be a surprise. Pick an issue that the market demands. Consumers want it. American entrepreneurs will fill that void. Yeah. No, I think I was at a, uh, a trade show in Atlanta, Georgia, two years ago, and one of the booths had, you know, hemp-derived Delta 9 chocolates, and it blew my mind, and it was federally legal, sourced from the hemp plant. And so, yeah, it's really fascinating kind of watching those two lanes of cannabis progress towards, you know, ultimately what I envision to be the same goal, which is what we're trying to establish or what you're trying to establish in the global market, right? And that's creating not necessarily distinctions of hemp and marijuana based on THC, but distinctions more based on the model, the final product, um, the four lanes, I think is the term you like to use. Um, what are those four lanes? Everything in the cannabis industry, more specifically, everything that comes out of the cannabis, cannabis plant fits quite neatly in one of four already developed public policy lanes. The first being the pharmaceutical lane, meaning if I have a formulation, I take it to the FDA, or if I'm international, I take it to the FDA equivalent, and I can get it approved or not approved based on that formulation for a very specific condition. That's the pharma lane. The second lane, the industrial lane, kind of speaks for itself. Fuels, plastics, uh, durable goods, construction materials, door paneling, so forth and so on. Primarily fibers and the components of the internal uh, parts of the plant, cellulose, lignin, sugar. The third lane, over-the-counter marijuana. OTC marijuana is what it sounds like it is. If I want to buy a flower that's intoxicating, meaning above 0.3% THC, or an oil derived from that flower, or an edible infused with that oil derived from that flower that is designed specifically to produce um, an intoxicating uh, high uh, effect, um, then that fits into that lane. And that model exists in many countries around the world, uh, exists in many states across the United States, uh, even in the face of federal illegality. And then the fourth lane is what I'd call um, wellness products, nutraceuticals, meaning CBD fits in that bucket. Uh, hemp protein fits in that bucket. Omega-3s, omega-6s from the hemp plant, which are in high quantities uh, in the plant, naturally speaking. Those fit into that bucket as well. Uh, other products that are not necessarily designed to produce a high, but just make you healthier and feel better, those are the products. So going back to the last issue we discussed, really where does, where do the intoxicating compounds derived from the hemp plant, where do they fit in that paradigm? That's the problem. Not the, that there's a problem with that, it's just, there's not a quite neatly defined public policy lane to fit those uses into right now. And that's ultimately the struggle. Uh, and when states are trying to figure that out, states really have their hands tied behind their back because they don't know these things necessarily. They always have a duty to protect consumers from a safety, health and safety perspective. Uh, but th they, they need to create things or a particular lane for that out of scratch. And that remains to be seen how that's going to develop, but it's not going to go away. And in fact, if you don't accept and embrace the fact that these products are available in society today, and in fact, conservative states are legalizing and regulating them, then you're going to simply create the equivalent of a, a gray or a black market for those products. And that's the exact opposite of what 
the federal farm bill from industrial hemp was intended to do. It was intended to re-legitimize an industry that was quashed because of misperceptions about the plant and everything that happened back in the, the teens and, and into the 30s uh, before the, the, um, the uh, Controlled Substances Act was ultimately enacted. So that's the rub there. And governments are not really great at creating new regulatory pathways. They like to put things into existing pathways, and that's uh, ultimately the challenge with those sorts of products. And so then that, that new pathway would be, you know, recreational products for, you know, intoxicating effects that don't necessarily fit within those buckets. Um, and yeah, I agree. You know, there's not an existing framework for that outside of maybe alcohol, right? There's not many other substances that people consume for recreation that have these intoxicating effects. And so it will be fascinating to see how countries and policymakers reconcile the fact that people do want to access these products for recreational purposes um, with the fact that currently products are being lumped into these, you know, industrial or medicinal or pharmaceutical buckets. And so it'll be fascinating to watch that progress. Um, so we've touched upon the international market a bit. Um, and, you know, over the last year, part of what you've been very busy doing is, is building out an international network. And you've been to quite a few places around the world, you know, Berlin, I think you were, uh, where else? Well, gosh, that's a, that's a laundry list. Uh, thank goodness we, we have a map on the wall behind us. But uh, no, ultimately, the, the, uh, the industry is global in scope. Um, I've dedicated a large part of my previous four years of, of practice into uh, developing the global marketplace. Why? It's just more interesting. It's interesting, and it's happening regardless of what happens in the United States. Everybody likes to say that um, the, the, uh, the United States, everything that the USA does, um, the rest of the world will follow. And that may be true in part, right? But we, the U.S. really never misses an opportunity because we have so many consumers, particularly in this industry, and we have access to capital um, that's quite substantial. Uh, uh, and, and, and many of our agencies are perceived as the gold standards for how regulation should occur around the world. So you don't really miss an opportunity, but you miss an opportunity to, to, to really set the standard and be a, be a leader to, to, the, to the fact that you know, countries tend to ignore how they each treat cannabis regulation and wanted to do their own thing, even though there is a tried and true pattern there. But working around the world, across Latin America for years, uh, in numerous countries there, Africa, Europe, looking at uh, India and Pakistan and the Southeast Asia with Thailand. Uh, I mean, since we, we ended season one of the Hoban Minute, Thailand not only legalized cannabis for certain purposes, but was giving out plants. If you want a plant and you're a Thai citizen, you can go get plants issued and provided to you by the government. I mean, this is a fast-moving industry, and as much as it's been certainly 12 or 13 years that I've worked in it, um, and, and other folks maybe substantially less than that, uh, and those are dog years, by the way, every year that goes by, and you know it well, it, 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 it grinds you down, um, but to understand how quickly opinions change and how quickly these policies are changed when one day there's not a chance it's going to occur, and then the very next day there's a a proposal to legalize, commercialize, and regulate the plant in some form or fashion. That's what's exciting to me. Now, doing that in the United States is fun, but 
everybody has an opinion. And everybody's opinion creates stakeholders, groups, and that creates controversy in how regulations roll out state by state, jurisdiction by jurisdiction. It's not necessarily the same way globally. It happens from the top down. It's a product, frankly, of our, our lack of federal leadership on the issue, which, by the way, I'm not sure is a bad thing. Um, but at the end of the day, that's why everybody has an opinion, because there's no direct leadership. Whereas if you go to Germany, oh, it's quite clear that the German centralized government and its drug agency are going to contemplate how to do this. They're going to solicit input, but they are going to create a perfectly... Um, rational, reasonable, and perfectly German way to regulate this product, which will be accepted by many countries around the world. So we may have missed the United States opportunity to be a leader in that regard, but that doesn't mean we've missed an opportunity to be as influential as we are in other industries. I like that. And I think there's still an opportunity for American-based brands. I think you know globally, American-based brands tend to capture audiences with vigor. And so I think, you know, regardless of whether or not the U.S. ends up being a cultivation or manufacturing hub for cannabis products, I think there's a real chance that many of the well-known global cannabis brands will be U.S.-based companies, um, again, potentially with operations in, in other jurisdictions. And so it's going to be really interesting to see how that all fleshes out in the coming years. And I think we've really seen the international industry and space take off. Um, in the last two years, three years. Uh, frankly, it seems like the COVID pandemic has almost accelerated the growth of the global cannabis industry. And that's really some of the exciting stuff that we're going to be focused on bringing the audience for this season two of the Hope and Minute is, you know, touching upon these issues that are, you know, maybe domestic in nature in the U.S. and affect operators here in the United States, but also how those issues and policies and developments impact the global scale and what the U.S.'s place is in that global market and how cannabis operators can even take advantage of potential opportunities to enter that global sphere. Um, you know, we'll be bringing on some amazing guests from politicians to um, celebrities to operators to other leaders like yourself in the cannabis industry. Um, and we'll be have the opportunity to not only pick their brains, but be able to share that knowledge with the audience and, you know, disseminate information that might, uh, might otherwise be seen as insider or hard to access. Yeah, that was one of the greatest thrills that I had during season one was that the feedback I got from so many people was listening to the Hoban Minute was effectively like getting an MBA in the industry because you understood, you heard from leaders, as you point out, you heard from influential people in the industry, you heard from service providers, uh, whether they're ancillary providers, branders, consultants, lawyers, accountants, so forth and so on. Uh, it's to paint, paint that broad base perspective because here's another challenge with the cannabis industry. Because it's non-centralized, in part in the U.S. because of the lack of federal legalization, uh, in part, part because every state has its own cannabis culture and its own set of cannabis regulations. Uh, it's a fragmented industry. And the investors to the industry don't always understand, believe it or not, what they're investing in. They, like, they see the numbers, and they like the numbers, generally speaking, yes and no at certain times, debt versus equity at certain times. But they understand the business, but they don't understand what the industry really is or what its capabilities are. And to create those segments or to identify them through interviews, through bringing in uh, people to talk about 
these issues from a thought leadership perspective. That's really what I get excited about because not only do our listeners, at least presumably based on what they tell us, learn something, I, we, we get to learn a lot along the way as well. And that's, that's ultimately um, what this forum allows us to do. So uh, very excited for the season to come. Uh, excited about some, some, some top-notch guests. Inside, excited to talk about the cannabis plant and the cannabis industry from a variety of perspectives. You know, because that's the whole thing. I talk about the segments of the industry. Oh, there's, a medical, there's medical and there's adult use. Oh, and then there's CBD too. Well, that ignores the four policy lanes, but that's really for a policy perspective. There are so many segments of the industry. When you consider that the cannabis plant, period, has a purported 50,000 uses, we don't need 50,000 of them. Think of 12 or 15 of them that are severely impactful globally that help with economics, help with all of the things we talked about from a social and criminal justice perspective, help develop products and pipelines and supply chains that are plant-based and that are not reliant on things that are detrimental to human beings, to the environment, and ultimately that are too controversial for government. So those are the perspectives that we hope to and will bring to the table. Uh, and, you know, the rest is, uh, is to be determined, but that's the beauty of it. In this industry, you just never know what's going to happen tomorrow. Yes, indeed. Every day is a change, and the only constant, as I always say, is change. And so we are going to be soliciting feedback and suggestions from the audience. If you have any suggestions for guests, um, for segments of the show, please email us, hello at bobhoban.com. I think Bob wrapped up the show perfectly for our first episode, um, you know, talking about the sustainability of the industry from a capital and environmental and human perspective and how cannabis can potentially teach other industries how to behave and how to operate in a modern world. And so really looking forward to continue to explore that topic and many more with the audience. And uh, any closing thoughts, Bob? No, I think we've, we've summed it up well. Looking forward to get this thing rolling. Uh, although I will say, um, just looking around the world, and, and maybe this is the way to leave this, you know, you think about the terrible Russian war on Ukraine, but specifically how that has put a highlight for our purposes, selfishly in the cannabis industry, on Brittany Griner, WNBA player, uh, tremendous college athlete, um, and the fact that she allegedly, but was convicted of this, brought cannabis cartridges into a country where it was clearly illegal. And the so-called horse trading right now involves looking at whether there can be prisoner swaps to free Brittany Griner from what appears to be a very unfair, even in Russia, uh, criminal sentence. But it also causes us to reflect on ourselves. So the Brittany Griner episode is not just about Brittany Griner. It's about the fact that Joe Biden and the administration has to go out into the world and negotiate for, to free a prisoner based on doing something that's clearly illegal in Russia. But guess what, Xavier? It's also clearly illegal in, in, under federal law in the United States. And there are, there are a thousand, if not exponentially more than that, uh, Brittany Griners in prison in the United States. And hopefully, hopefully that sort of schizophrenic way to look at the cannabis industry really sets in at the federal level and they'll recognize at a minimum that criminal justice reform needs to occur and that's probably the prerequisite 
to commercial or regulated cannabis industry reform. So again, so much to talk about. It's global in scope, and I'm looking forward to doing it with you. I love it. And so maybe that's the U.S.'s why, to uh, defeat the irony of having to swap prisoners for Brittany Griner when she indeed could still be incarcerated for the same crime here in the United States. All right, everyone. Looking forward to continuing the season with you. Until next time. Thanks for joining us for another enlightening conversation. If you liked what you heard, hit that subscribe button to get all future episodes fresh out of the studio. Suggestions for topics or guests for the show, please send them to hello at bobhoban.com. And as always, thanks to Benzinga for powering the Hoban Minute.